What I want to do is use this time today, I'll be as brief as I can, to just lay a foundation for the rest of the series and talk about some really <clears throat> serious things that set up the set up the the set up the, the the foundation for the rest of what we're going to talk about. I, unless we understand these couple of things, we we're not going to get this series. Um, let me start with a story. I was in the shower again in the men's room of the of the club where I work out. Now this time I was in the shower. I wasn't in the in the room, the dressing room part, I was in the shower, showering. The gentleman next to me says, you're a pastor, aren't you? We're, we're both showering. He says, you're a pastor, aren't you? <laughs> I had to think for a minute. So something about my anatomy or I... I <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, what do you think about that decision on Friday by the Supreme Court? So this was week before last. Boy, with that, that decision, the church is going to have to fight. We're really going to be challenged to have to stand and defend the faith in these times. And I thought for just a moment and I said, well, you know what, brother? I have a little bit different take on that. I said, I believe in a victorious church. I believe that when Jesus said that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that he meant that. And I just believe that's the time that we're in. And so rather than hiding and running, and I, I, I believe what the Supreme Court decided, which I don't agree with, but I believe it gives the church new opportunities to share the love of God like we've never had before. He didn't say anything else. <laughs> I'm telling you folks, what, what we're going to talk about today as a foundation for this series is so important. Listen, th this mental attitude towards the church and sin and confession and uh, that God leaves us when we sin and, and that we should start with fear and separation with our testimony when we're witnessing, you know, uh, where would you go tonight if you, if, you, if you were to lose your life? If you were to die tonight, where would you go? You know, it's just totally fear-based. You've all seen the, the various diagrams. We have, we have the, the cliff here with God on it. We have the cliff over here with man on it. And there's this gulf, this separation between man and God. I mean, we start with fear. We start with separation. And that's problematic. This week I received an email and down at the bottom in the signature block was this, quote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And then the guy's name and sign off, address, phone number. That was in his signature block. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. <laughs> what a motto to live by. That I should be sin conscious, that, that, that my day is spent killing off sin. And yet, this is common amongst believers today. So I really felt like we needed to talk about a paradigm shift. It's in your hand, outline there, your handout. Let's talk about a shift of our paradigm. 
Many people are unaware that when, for instance, the New Testament talks about the Word of God and the Word of God this or God in Psalms, God sent His Word or whatever, we think that's talking about our leather-bound Bible with 66 books in it. You know, don't you, that that didn't exist when those scriptures were written. So there's a paradigm shift for you right there to realize that when the Bible's talking about the Word of God, it's talking about something so much greater than just the written logos of your New Testament that you hold between a leather binding that we treasure, we love, we, it's, 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 it's precious to us. I believe it's God-breathed. I believe it's uh, inspired by God. In Aaron, in its original translation, as correctly translated. But it, it never takes the place of God. And it never takes the place of the living word of God, which was Jesus. So there's a paradigm shift right there for you to realize that when, when these authors are talking about the word of God, they're not talking about your New Testament. Secondly, you realize, don't you, that the New Testament saints didn't have a Bible. They had the books of Moses. Some of the temples had scrolls from the prophets, the writings of the prophets. But they didn't have a, a Bible with 66 books in it, bound in leather, you know, to turn chapter and verse. And there's another paradigm shift for you. Chapter and verse. Chapter and verse was added in the last couple hundred years. These were letters largely or prophetic sayings and recordings by these men and men and women inspired by God to record what they had seen, what they had witnessed, but they weren't broken up into nice, neat little chapters and verses. I didn't know that. I thought what I hold today as a Bible is what they used back then. <laughs> that they had chapter and verses. Yet we, 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 we treat the Bible like it's always been that way. It's a paradigm shift for us to realize that that's not the case. Help me now. Don't, don't <laughs> we were pretty good on how that was sounding. Don't take me out of that. How about the book order? Uh, of our Bible. Do, do you realize that according to, to what most people think, Genesis was the first book of the Bible? And then of course we have Exodus and we have Leviticus and we have... Okay. That's, most people think that's the order. Do you know that Job was the first book written? Most people don't know that. See, we, we, we look at the Bible and we, we think, oh my gosh, this, this thing, it's, it's holy, it's precious, it's, you, you can't touch it, you can't ever question its form that it's in. The Gospel of John is thought to be written about 30 years later than most of the other books in the New Testament. This is one of the reasons why John is a bit esoteric and instead of recording history, he writes about the image of man in Christ coinciding with the Pauline revelation of Colossians, Ephesians, and Romans. And then of course John wrote the book of Revelation. 
How about this one? Romans chapter 8 verse 1. You can probably quote it. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That entire second part, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, is not even in the original. And so we build a whole doctrine after that. That always used to put me under condemnation. I'd read the first part of that and get excited. Therefore, now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'd say, praise God. And I'd read the rest of it, which qualified it as a condition that if I'm walking in the flesh, man, I'm not free. I'm not forgiven. I am condemned. And that whole second part of that verse isn't even in there. You study it out for yourself, you'll find what I'm telling you is true. How about this one? And Jesus said to her, neither, I, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I mean, who doesn't know that verse? That phrase, go and sin no more, was added by Papus of Herodias or Heraclius and has been rejected as part of Scripture by Aramis, Calvin, Beza, Grotius, Weston, Tittemann, Knapp and many others. The scripture simply says, neither do I condemn you, period. Brothers and sisters, that's a revelation. That's foundational to how we think. Because we've built so many doctrines regarding our evangelical position on judgment and sin and confession and who Christ is and so forth. Off of passages like this, and we never question them. We never stop to look them up and think uh, more critically about what the Bible really says. Dear ones, listen to me. In this need for a paradigm shift, you've got to understand that Jesus did not come as an upgrade to the Jewish law. He did not come as an upgrade to the temple. He did not come as an upgrade to a system of laws that just got old and so now he's going to introduce a bunch of new law code. A lot of people think that Jesus came to establish the Christian religion. Jesus didn't come to establish a new religion. They called Christians Christians as a demeaning term, meaning Christ follower, someone who's just mindlessly following that person who claimed to be God and claimed to be a prophet, so they started calling them Christians. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says, and they shall, and God said, we shall call you Christians. We're called disciples, <laughs> believers. Now, I don't mind the word Christian. I, I claim to be a Christian, all of that. I just want you to see that in our paradigm, we've got to examine things and critically think about things and not just accept things hook, line, and sinker, especially when they make a huge difference in how it is we believe foundationally about critical matters that affect our relationship with Almighty God. Jesus came as a voice of the likeness and image of God in human form. He came to reveal and redeem the image of God that's within us. Pastor, do you believe in a fall? I believe in a fall. But ever since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that separation no longer exists. And I'm talking about all men, not just those who are in the club. Alright, let's deal with one of the foundational principles of this entire series. You've got to get this one. 
the old covenant has been replaced. And why we still base so much of our teaching and what we believe about God on the old covenant is beyond me. But especially here in the American church, it is how we were raised and it is what is preached from the majority of pulpits. Most ministers spend more time getting revelation from, quote, the, quote, revelation from the old covenant than they do the new covenant. They preach from it constantly. So, you have in your outline there, and you can join me as we begin reading in Hebrews, verses 5 through 13, Hebrews. And I've written down here chapter 8 in your outline. They serve... Speaking of the Old Covenant and the laws, the 630-some laws of Moses in the Old Covenant, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and each one of their brothers saying, Know the Lord and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one say it. In speaking of a first one, or a, excuse me, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one in speaking about a new one, he makes the first one obsolete. Dear brothers and sisters, are you seeing this? It's not where you spend your time. It's not where you're to be preaching out of. You should not be witnessing and sharing your faith out of the Old Covenant. Now, Paul said this about the Old Covenant. All that was written aforetime was written for our instruction. There's a lot of great things we can learn out of that old covenant. But you don't build your faith on it. You don't build your relationship with God now after Christ on it. And you don't preach or share the gospel based on the old covenant. Why? Because he's done away with it. It's obsolete. I, I don't know how many Christians have never even read this. But it's in your Bible, in the book of Hebrews. Now, going back to chapter 7, looking with me at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. Get this. Who's he talking about? What's he talking about? The Old Covenant and the Levitical priesthood. What, was the Levitic what does the Levitical priesthood represent? Sacrifices. A system of laws for appeasing God, gaining approval from God, remittance of sins, all of that, the whole thing. Your whole relationship with God was based on the Levitical priesthood in the Old Covenant. 
coming to God, being able to come into His presence, gaining forgiveness, all the laws that you had to obey in order to be right with God and have right standing with God, all come from the Levitical priesthood. So, here's what he's talking about. He says, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. You've got to read your Bible. And we've got to read after the Gospels, starting in Acts. And we've got to read the Pauline epistles and the revelation that John walked in and that Luke walked in. You cannot rely on the Old Covenant. And you cannot build your doctrine about Christ and our relationship with Him based on the Gospels alone. The Gospels were a picture of how Jesus came and lived in that redeemed state of God's identity, showing us not just being a testimony for us, but a testimony of us. He showed us what's possible. He lived the kind of life in the Gospels showing us what we would live like as we found ourselves in Him. But you've got to go past the Gospels into the Pauline revelation of faith and who we are in Christ and the new birth in order to really live in the New Testament concept of grace and likeness. So, because you could not get that, you could not get, ever get, right standing with God through the law. You could never get likeness and find out what God made you and who God made you to be through the Levitical priesthood. Then God wiped it out. He said, I'm, just, I'm not going to use that anymore. That was a tutor to bring people to Christ. It was, just a, it was like being in school. It was a tutor to lead you. To the real, it was a shadow, he says. We read it. It was a shadow prophetically of things to come. So I've changed it. I've changed the priesthood. I've changed the law code. I've changed everything about it. Pick up in the second paragraph there under letter B. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, speaking of Jesus from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement. Get this. Your faith, your relationship with God will never be based on on a legal requirement, which was the entire law code and purpose of the, the Levitical priesthood, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness, speaking of the law, speaking of the old covenant, and it's useless. Oh my goodness. The old covenant the old moral law, the sacrifices, the do not, touch not, taste not, handle not, you can't, you shouldn't, you must not. He says here, 
All of that has been set aside. Why? Because it's weak and it's useless. For the law could make nothing perfect. And yet people live there, Dave. Christians live in the Old Testament. Sucked in to the idea that behavior modification will gain you approval with God. <sighs> All based on an old covenant, which the writer of Hebrews is saying, God did away with. It was weak. It was useless. I've replaced it. And I've put a new priest over the whole thing. And he's not even of the, 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 the Levitical priesthood. He's of the priesthood of Melchizedek. I'm going to totally redo this thing, God says. It'll be better. It'll be based on the supernatural that has an ability to transform the human heart. And it won't be based on law code. And it won't be based on your physical body and you controlling your desires and trying to appease God. I'm going to wipe all that out. I'm going to do it for you. And I'm going to put Jesus in charge of it all. And he's going to come and give his life to make it possible. Let's deal with another myth. It's the, it's the myth that my faith and my repentance makes the gospel true. Dear ones, listen. The gospel is true whether you ever believe it or not. When Jesus died, he died for all. Whether you ever believe that, accept it, uncover it in your own reality, and come to faith in Christ or not, that's done. And then when he rose again, you co-rose with him. You were co-resurrected with Jesus. You were co-crucified with Jesus. And you were co-resurrected with Jesus. And the separation that we teach in our classes on evangelism. To start with somebody telling them there's this gap between you and God and this gulf. And it can't be spanned unless you have the cross in there. And then when you stick the cross in there, you can walk across to God. We start with that. And it's the wrong gospel. It's not the gospel of the New Testament. The gospel of the New Testament is that the chasm... The gulf that used to exist, the separation that used to exist, is closed now in God for every man, whether you ever accept it or not. We start with the fact that all died in Christ, all have risen in Christ. Reading from the Mirror Bible in a comment made by Francis Toy. I quote, In God's faith, mankind is associated in Christ even before the foundation of the world. Jesus died humanity's death, and when the stone was rolled away, we were raised together with him. The dynamic of the gospel is the revelation of God's faith as the only valid basis of our belief. Paul quotes Habakkuk, who prophetically introduced a new error when he realized that righteousness would be founded in what God believes and not in man's clumsy ability to obey the law. End quote. Isn't that powerful? Oh, 
My righteousness isn't based on my behavior. My righteousness isn't based on confession or repentance. And I believe in both of those things. I believe we need to do both of those things. But it's not to make the gospel true. And it's not to make it real. And that's what we're going to get into in the series dealing with wineskins starting next Sunday, God willing. So you're going to have to be here. But I had to give you this understanding of where we begin with our Bible and where we begin with Old and New Testaments. Now, let's wrap this thing up. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day in which I took them by the hand and I brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put, watch this. It's not dependent on your confession. It's not dependent on your repentance. It's not dependent on you crying, coming forward in a church, shaking the preacher's hand, responding to a sermon. It's not dependent on that. Look at it. For I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, you got to know the Lord. You got to come to Jesus. You've got to confess your sins. You've got to accept Jesus as your savior. You will not teach them that. For I, verse 12, will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. And yet, Evangelism 101, you've got to tell people they're sinners. And then you've got to tell them and explain they're separated from God. And then you've got to lead them through a process of repenting, praying the prayer. And then as they start living a life that's pleasing to God, God will accept them. And he says, no, you will not do that any longer. I'm going to write my laws in their heart. I'm going to be their God. I'm going to wipe out their sin and remember it no more. Paul picks up this theme in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 through 19. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And as I've said, if he's not, I have no business. Are you getting this? Dear ones, this paradigm shift regarding the old versus new covenant regarding what really happened when Jesus died on that cross and how he has reconciled, whether you ever believe it or not, he's reconciled you to God already. 
Do you see how beautiful this makes witnessing and sharing your faith? To start with somebody on the basis that God's already forgiven them. There's no separation between them and God now. He's already made them one. He's already wrapped his arms around them. Oh, if you only knew, dear one, you're speaking to your friend, your neighbor, that lost person. If you only knew how much God loves you. If you only knew how much he wants to bless you. And then you know what Jesus did in the middle of all that just to demonstrate God's love? He'd do miracles. He'd heal people. He'd open blind eyes. He'd feed the poor. And they hadn't prayed the prayer yet. (laughs) You can't heal somebody before they've prayed the prayer. Jesus, you're going to mess everything up. You're going to mess and screw with our old covenant. And he says, exactly. In fact, I'm going to do away with it. It was weak and useless. It could never change the human heart. I'm going to completely replace it. I'm not coming out of Levite. I'm coming out of Judah, which means praise. And I'm going to do what the old covenant could never do. I'm going to come and I'm going to close that separation. Whether you like it or not, regardless of your decision, your repentance, you're ever confessing it by faith. I'm going to remove sin. I'm going to wipe it out. I'm going to pay the price for it. And then I'm going to start writing my laws on their heart. And then Paul says, and he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. What I'm telling and trying to explain to you as the foundation for our faith is exactly why people become Christians and return to their vomit within a couple of years. They get saved, they experience initial joy, and they get locked into the same old moral law code and they start trying to be godly. And they start trying to live a good life. And they start looking at the old covenant and saying, I don't measure up. And they view the new covenant as just a new list, an expanded list. In fact, where in the old covenant, Jesus, or, or the Bible, uh, in the old covenant said, you shall not commit adultery. And, 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 and if you did, you might get stoned. In the new covenant, Jesus raises that bar and says, hey, you can't even look at a woman to lust. Guilty. <laughs> I mean... I deserve to be stoned. I deserve to be run out of town. I mean, guilty, messed up. And that's exactly the point. God's going to do for you what you can't do, what you will never be able to do. You'll never be able to be like God in your flesh or by obeying a set of rules and laws. He's going to do it for you. And so he does it. He comes. He lives a perfect life on this earth. He gives his life as the sacrifice. He becomes a, He doesn't just perform a sacrifice on our behalf like the old Levitical priesthood. He becomes the sacrifice for us in our place. And then he purchases our salvation. Not, by the way, just for you who have said the prayer and are now in the club. He's done this for your friends. He's done this for the gay person and the lesbian. He's, he's done this for the corporate CEO. He's, he's done this. He, he's done that. Listen, he's done this for my neighbors who were playing loud, booming music last night over some sort of, I mean, they must have wired their house 
with, with 30 and 40 inch speakers, Pastor Rod. I mean, it was going till 11.30 last night. And then fireworks. It's illegal to shoot fireworks. Not at their house. Now, that old Levitical law code, that self-righteous spirit in me, I almost got out of bed and went and knocked on the door. Bless God. (laughs) Then Judah took over. And my hands went in the air. And the love of God poured over my spirit. And Jesus said, son, you look for an opportunity to share the love with them. And tell them how I'm crazy about them. And I love them. And I've redeemed them to myself. Look for an opportunity to pray for their ankle or their knees. This is why initial enthusiasm in Christianity turns into bitterness and hatred towards the church. This misunderstanding of what I'm talking to you about is why people can substitute pleasure and entertainment for community and life-giving connection. It's why people grow comfortable with the cage of religion and exchange the freedom of grace for the service of law code and they call it normal Christianity. Christianity, let us not do that anymore. 